This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. And I'd like to use my time wisely and go to chapter 2 where we have the letters to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira. Now what I'm not going to do, and you can do that on your own, is read about the setting of the churches. That is, all the information about, for example, Ephesus. I think you can read that on your own. Very interesting, to be sure. But in order to save some time, I'd rather go to the exegesis of the individual verses. <clears throat> Middle of the page. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands says this, Jesus instructed John to write a short letter addressed to the pastor of the church in Ephesus. This church could be called the mother church in the province of Asia. Perhaps the God-fearing Jews from this province who returned home from the Pentecost visit in Jerusalem, Acts 2 verse 9, may have been the first believers, disciples. In Ephesus, Paul and his associates came and preached and teach, to preach and teach the doctrines of Christ. And from Paul's rented quarters of the Tyrannus Hall, Acts 19.9, students of the Word went forth to many cities of that area to further the spread of the Gospel. In the early church, people considered Ephesus a leader in the province of Asia. And hence, it was, a it was the first among the seven churches to receive a letter. That's what you call <coughs> churches. The first church. And then you have churches that are called second church. Are they second best? I'm not here to say anything about names, but choose names carefully because they communicate. I like the word Bethel. House of God. It is. I like the word Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. These are good names. Okay. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The first identification of Jesus given to the church is significant. Even though the church at Ephesus is first among the seven, her pastor is placed on the same level as the other six. Jesus says that he holds all of them in his protective hand. For he is not only their commissioner, but also their guardian. The verb to hold means that Jesus has ultimate power and authority to safeguard his servants. Actually, all his people are in his hand, for no harm shall come to the, any of them without his will. 
He walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. The golden lampstands are the members of the churches on whom Jesus' eye constantly rests. They represent the bride who awaits the coming of the bridegroom. The bridegroom is expecting his bride to remain faithful, true, and pure. The symbolism of the text shows that Jesus wants the churches to let the light shine in the darkness where he has placed them. To give other meaning to the task of the churches, he tells them that he is walking among them. Where two or three are assembled in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Matthew eighteen twenty. The light they spread passes from Jesus Christ to his servants who proclaim the word. And pastors are not merely light bearers, but like stars, they are light givers. They pass on the light to the members of the churches who in turn dispel the darkness that surrounds them. Jesus addresses the messengers of the local churches for they are responsible for bringing the message to the people. If they fail to do so, <clears throat> they shut out the light of the gospel and keep the members of the church in the dark. And how can they hear without someone preaching to them, says Paul in Romans 10, verse 14. Jesus speaks with authority and expects his servants of the word to be his ambassadors. Verse 2. I know, you were, <coughs> I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance <coughs> and that you are not able to tolerate evildoers and you have tested those who call themselves apostles but are not and you have found them to be liars. Jesus does not say that he is merely familiar with their works. He states that he has a detailed knowledge of everything they are doing because nothing escapes his attention. He praises the Ephesians as is evident from the words works, toil, patient, endurance. Also, the possessive pronoun your is significant. And because of its Repetition emphasizes the labor and attitude. This pronoun is in the singular, which unfortunately English is able, unable to express. The use, of the, <coughs> the use of the singular means that the pastor whom Jesus addresses is responsible for the spiritual well-being of the church, but also with his singular Jesus speaks to each individual church member. The noun works is all-inclusive and can be interpreted to mean both good deeds and misdeeds. <clears throat> Here the stress is more on the positive than the negative aspect of the term. Good works consist of toil on the one hand and patient endurance on the other. Toil includes physical and mental work both of which are usually taxing and exhausting. Opposing <coughs> wicked men, false apostles, and Nicolaitans in the community undoubtedly exhausted the members of the Ephesian church. Their attitude was one of patient endurance and steadfastness in the face of spiritual conflict. 
Incidentally, the Greek word hypomane, which I have translated as patient endurance, occurs seven times. What is patient endurance? It is an inner quality that is expressed in waiting for Jesus, in whose absence the believer steadfastly witnesses for him even to the point of suffering death through persecution. And you are not able to tolerate evildoers. A Christian who performs good works through external toil and internal patience is unable to put up with the deeds of evil people around him. The Greek word, dune, he translated as are able, is singular in number. That is, the individual whose heart is truly devoted to serve the Lord cannot yield place to evil and to, <coughs> to those who purposely perpetrate it. The maxim that Jesus loves a sinner but hates sin is valid and applies. But a follower of Christ cannot tolerate evildoers who refuse to repent but persist in doing evil. Now, who are these evildoers? If we observe typical Hebraic parallelism that is used to stress or clarify a point, we see the answer in the second part of the verse namely the false apostles. John does not convey the idea of two different types of evildoers, but one. The liars are the evildoers. And Jesus says, You have tested those who call themselves apostles, but are not. They are liars. The Ephesian Christians had to confront itinerant missionaries who entered the church and brazenly called themselves apostles. But the followers of Christ tested them and found them to be counterfeit. The so-called apostles preached a gospel that was not a gospel of Christ. They were not appointed by Jesus and they lacked authority to serve the entire church. Look at 2 Corinthians 11.13. In Paul's day, <coughs> false apostles came with fraudulent recommendations. They demanded that he demonstrate his apostleship with an endorsement. However, however, Paul laid down the marks of an apostle. Namely, here they are. To preach Jesus and his gospel. To perform signs, wonders, and miracles. And third, to do them with perseverance. The Ephesians tested the doctrine and the works of these apostles and discovered that they were people who were imposters. Because Jesus mentions the Nicolaitans by name in verse 6, and he does so and again in 2 verse 15, the suggestion that these people were the false apostles is not at all unrealistic. Nevertheless, we have no certainty that they originated in Palestine or were sent by Judaizers. Coming with pretense and fanfare, they met outright rejection from the Ephesians who hated the practices. They were called liars. Verse 3, And you have endured and have tolerated because of my name, and have not become weary. 
Notice the terms. Have endured and tolerance. They're putting up with these people, but they have not become weary. Uh, praise. Jesus speaks of praise. Jesus commended the church in Ephesus for their deeds, hard work, endurance, testing false doctrine, and calling intruders liars. Now we summarize their stance by praising them for their perseverance to endure hardship for His name. These words should be understood as a reference to disciplinary action the church took with reference to the intruders. They banned them from entering the church and they set an example of the other churches to do likewise. Yet the congregations in Pergamum and Thyatira failed to dismiss the interlopers. Question, or an aside here. What are the marks of the true church of Jesus Christ? Three. Proclaiming the gospel faithfully. Number two. Sacraments. Administration of the sacraments. Number three, exercise of discipline. And let us never forget that discipline must be done gently but firmly, regardless what the ACLU may say. You continue to be faithful to your Lord. If there is Sin in a member of the congregation, let's say adultery. The church has to deal with it according to Matthew 18. Go to this person. Convince him or her of the error of his way. If there is no response, then come back with two or three others. And once more, as time goes on, don't do it the next day. But as time goes on, do it again. If he doesn't want to listen, then bring it to the attention of the whole church so that the whole church may pray. And then comes the time that you have to say, we have to excommunicate you. But notice, what we also as churches have is a formulary for reintroduction, a return of the repentant sinner, a reinstatement. Now let's continue. <clears throat> the name. Not the witness for Jesus by a Christian is meant as much as the person of Christ. The name Christian implies that one belongs to and fully identifies with Christ. That means that if someone attacks a Christian, he attacks Christ himself. The converse is also true. When someone assaults Christ, he offends the Christian. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 1 Peter 4.14 If people reject the preaching of the gospel, they harden their heart against Christ. 
When they attack his name, they besmirch his honor. And they sin against the command not to use the Lord's name in vain. Also, the Christian who fails to defend Jesus' name is equally guilty in the sight of the Lord. The believers in Ephesus were zealous of that name and were tireless in promoting his honor. Over against the motto, Caesar is Lord, they boldly stated that Jesus is Lord. By honoring Christ's name and readily enduring persecution and hardship, the Ephesians demonstrated that they had not become weary in their spiritual life. Verse 4, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Instead of continuing his words of praise, for the leading church in the province of Asia, Jesus chastised chastised and admonished the Ephesian Christians. Notwithstanding their ceaseless efforts to oppose evil men who entered the church and subverted its members, to persevere tirelessly, to endure hardship for the sake of Christ, something was amiss in Ephesus. They no longer demonstrated the love for Christ they had in the earlier days of their history. Those were the days when Paul preached that which was helpful to them and taught publicly from house to house for a period of three years, Acts 20. About a decade later, Paul wrote to Timothy, who was pastor in Ephesus, and told him that love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith is the goal of God's work among them. He remarked that some false teachers in the congregation devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies instead of the requirements of love. Is this love for each other in the Christian church or is it the Christian's love for the Lord? Jesus himself gives the answer in the Decalogue by saying, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second, like it, is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang, that is, depend on these two commandments. Matthew 22, 37-40. With respect to the Decalogue, God is first and then his people. And the same thing is true regarding the Lord's Prayer. Genuine love for God instinctively leads to expressing love for the neighbor. What loving the Lord, the neighbor is an expression for loving God. When Jesus says that the Ephesians had lost their first love, he does not mean to say that Ephesians live and work without love for God and the neighbors. He stresses the adjective first. In effect, a literal translation reads, you have left, left your love, namely the first love. The lush green color of springtime in the congregation has disappeared and the fading shades that characterize an early autumn are now prevalent. To put it differently, 
the church that Jesus addressed no longer consisted of first generation believers, but of second and third generation Christians. These people lacked the enthusiasm their grandparents, parents had dem demonstrated. They functioned not as propagators of the faith, but as caretakers and custodians. There was an obvious deficiency in evangelistic outreach as a result of a status quo mode of thought. They loved the Lord, but no longer with heart, soul, and mind. The first generation exerted extraordinary effort so that in Ephesus the word of God spread widely and grew in power. In later years, Paul addressed an epistle to them and praised them for their faith in the Lord Jesus and the love for fellow Christians. The children and grandchildren of these people opposed heresy and demonstrated persistence in fulfilling the needs of the church, but they fell short of genuine enthusiasm for the Lord. Therefore, verse 5, Remember the place from which you have fallen, Repent and perform the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now note the grammar. We have the verb have fallen. It is in the perfect tense. It indicates that considerable time has elapsed since the decline began. In passing, the tense seems to support not the early but the late dating of the or for the apocalypse. Next, the command to repent is in the aorist tense, signifying a single action that is to last once for all. Fourth, The same thing holds true for the command to perform the works the people did at first. Their repentance must keep pace with their, their decision to work just as enthusiastically as their predecessors. Fifth, the threat, I will come, although translated as a future, is actually in the present tense to indicate immediate action. Sixth, the verb, I will remove, in the future indicative, connotes that the threat is not a possibility, but a certainty if they fail. And last, the verb to repent in the second sentence is given as an escape clause. May I just insert this little word? Know your Greek. Do your exegesis faithfully, and it pays off. Because the Word of God is rich, and it's for you to read it and interpret. Okay, quickly, the command. The Lord does not only point to their shortcomings, He also showed them how to correct these shortcomings. 
they must constantly recall their former position by reviewing their own ecclesiastical history and recollecting what their forebears did in the church 40 years earlier. When Jesus says, perform the works as you did at first, he has in mind not the work the Ephesians have been doing all along, but rather the works of love for Christ. Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Truly love me more than these agapao. And so he is asking the members of the church at Ephesus for their undivided devotion. They must change their lifestyle and conduct. They must repent and turn a complete 180 degrees to do so. And of the threat, Jesus calls them to repentance. And if they don't listen, Jesus will remove their lampstand from its place. Which means that as a congregation, they will experience a complete spiritual blackout. All you have to do is look around. I'm not going to mention names. I merely say mainline churches and their attendance and membership is constantly declining. And what do they do? They merge with another denomination and so we're big again. And it goes down, 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 down. And the answer is, why? That's the question. The answer is, because you fail to spread the light of the gospel. And look at those congregations. Again, no names mentioned. Those congregations where the faithful word of God is proclaimed Sunday after Sunday and even throughout the week, churches are alive and are growing. And that's what Jesus wants. We are witnesses. We're given the light of the gospel to spread spread it in this dark world surrounding us. A decade after John wrote the Apocalypse, Ignatius penned a letter to the church in Ephesus in which he praised the local Christians for their patient endurance and their resistance to deceit. He notes that some people of Syria had passed through Ephesus with evil teachings, but that the Ephesians had refused to listen he commends them for being of one mind with the apostles in the power of Jesus Christ. Verse 6, Revelation 2, verse 6. However, if you have this in your favor, that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Ephesians had not wavered on doctrinal issues, for they remained true to the teaching of God's Word. Even though Jesus rebuked the members of the church at Ephesus, He pastorally lifts them up by commending them for the faithfulness to His Word. They opposed false apostles and had sent these wicked men from their midst. Now who are, or were, the Nicolaitans? Three opinions on this matter remain conjectural, because the details in Revelation are scanty. First, in the early church 
Irenaeus taught that the Nicolaitans were followers Nicolaeus, conqueror of the people, Nicolaos, Nikeo. The convert to Judaism who was appointed a deacon, Acts 6, 5. Next, others see these people as Gnostic, a Gnostic sect that sought to infiltrate the churches. Last, on the basis of exegesis, still others aver, aver that the Nicolaitans were the people who followed the teachings of the false apostles and Balaam. This assumption has merit, for in typical Hebraic style, John writes parallelism, <coughs> parallelism to stress a point. The false apostles sought to capture the minds of the people with a deceptive doctrines. The followers of Balaam attempted to conquer the people through deceit. The Greek name Nikolaos means he conquers the people. By comparing what is said about the followers of Balaam and Nicolaitans, we assume that these deceivers belong to the same group. Yet I admit there is no certainty on this point. The Christians in Pergamum and Thyatira struggled with the same deceptive doctrines and lifestyles. You also find that in chapter 2, verse 14 through 16 and 20 through 24. Yet in these churches, many succumbed to the allurements of the intruders and subsequently received words of rebuke for their failure to follow Jesus. And now verse 7. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To everyone who overcomes, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life which is in God's paradise. Now here we have the refrain which is found at the end of every letter. Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. That is, listen attentively and obediently to the words of the Holy Spirit. To everyone who overcomes, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life which is in God's paradise. Already I indicated that at the beginning of Revelation, chapter 2, you read about paradise, you read about again about paradise in chapter 22. Now the key word in this sentence is the expression overcome, which is in the, in the Greek is the present participle, the overcoming one. This is not a past or perfect tense as a completed action, but current and continuous performance. That is, the conflict and the trials of the present life in the world and in the churches are not final. The, church, the church's anticipated victory has its foundations laid in the victory already won by Jesus. Christ won the battle, but the war is not yet over. Not only the martyrs, but every believer is personally engaged in this war against Satan and his cohorts. Therefore, every believer receives the promise of eternal life and all the other promises that he grants 
the believer. Jesus promises the overcomer to eat from the tree of life. <clears throat> By referring to the tree of life, he effectively brings the reader back to the beginning of human history. Now note, <clears throat> after Adam and Eve sinned, God drove them out of the Garden of Eden and placed an angel with a flaming sword there to guard the tree of life. By guarding that tree, God prevented our forebears from eating the fruit of the tree of life and thus living eternally in the unredeemable state in which the fallen angels exist. So what God did by placing an angel with a flaming sword at the tree of life, he performed an act of grace, protecting Adam and Eve <coughs> from falling into the second sin. The first sin was eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The second was, or would have been, to eat from the tree of life. And if that had occurred, there would not have been redemption possible for you and me. <clears throat> the Greek term for paradise occurs only three times. <clears throat> Luke 23, 43, 2 Corinthians 12, 4, Revelation 2, 7. Now, in chapter 22, you don't read the word paradise, but you read about the river and the tree of life. In Genesis, the expression Garden of Eden appears, which in the Greek translation of the Old Testament becomes paradise. Derived from Old Persian, this word depicts, depicts a walled park as a place of bliss. In the Old Testament, it connotes a delight, delightful place unmarred by sin. The word describes the blissful life of believers with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. Paradise of God is similar to, but also different from, the Garden of Eden created by God for Adam and Eve. <clears throat> now move on to the church of Smyrna. We begin with verse 8 of chapter 2. <clears throat> and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the first and the last, who was dead and is alive, says this. <clears throat> One word about Smyrna. The United States has a naval base on the west coast of Turkey at a city called Izmir. Drop the I and yet Smyrna. If you drop the word and the letter S from the word Smyrna, you have Myr. And that's the gift the wise men brought to Jesus. A gift of Myr. Jesus commands John to write a letter to the pastor of the church in Smyrna and identifies him as 
identifies himself, Jesus himself, as the first and the last. <coughs> this comes really from Isaiah 44, verse 6, as well as Isaiah 48, verse 12, and also in 41, 4. This is what the Lord says, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me there is no God. However, Jesus adds to his self-designation the clause who was dead and is alive. He is the one who died on Calvary's cross, conquered death, and is alive. Throughout the apocalypse, the contrast between God and Satan, Christ and the Antichrist is spelled out. So the Antichrist, appearing as the beast coming up out of the sea, had a fatal wound yet lived. Chapter 13, 3, 12, and 14. <clears throat> this description of the Antichrist reveals his insidious imitation of Christ's death and resurrection. The difference between Christ and the Antichrist is that Christ conquered death, has the keys of death and Hades, and as the living one gives life to his people. The beast that is Antichrist, wounded by the sword is thrown alive with the false prophet into the lake of fire and burning sulfur. Verse 9. I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy from the ones who call themselves Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Jesus addresses individual believers by using the singular possessive pronoun your. That is, he is fully aware of the tribulation and poverty each Christian in Smyrna has to endure for the name of Christ. The word tribulation actually means living in oppression, in narrow straits. Also, the one leads to the other. Oppression results in poverty when work and resources are cut off because of one's testimony for Christ. The believers in Smyrna may have experienced the confiscation of their earthly belongings, for the expression poverty is the translation of the Greek term tochaya, which refers to abject poverty of a beggar. Paul writes about this condition to the Corinthians when he notes that Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, tocheo so that you through his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 2 and 9. Jesus underscores these words by telling his people in Smyrna that they are spiritually rich. This does not mean that the believers should invite persecution and hardship in order to become rich in spiritual resources. Rather, Jesus wants them to be faithful to him and his word, even when they go through hardship and abuse, for then they will be blessed spiritually. And now a word about these Jews <coughs> that are not Jews, as Jesus calls them. We are talking here about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I refer you to the text of Matthew 12, 22-32, where Jesus heals a man who could not see and he could not hear and speak. 
And then the people say, is this the son of David, namely the Messiah? But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who should have known, instead of saying, yes, this is the Messiah, said, this fellow is casting out demons in the name of Beelzebub, that is, Satan. Jesus, schooled in the rabbinic tradition, knew the meaning of blasphemy. Here is a statement coming from Sifra on the explanation or the commentary on Deuteronomy 32, verse 28. And here's the statement. The Holy One, blessed be He, pardons everything else but unprofanate profanation of the name, that is blasphemy, he takes vengeance immediately. End of quote. They circumvented uttering God's name by calling him Lord or Adonai. But Jesus as a Messiah enjoyed divinity and authority equal to God so that anyone consciously rejecting him would be guilty of blasphemy. The Jews in Smyrna refused to acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah and cursed him and his followers. Jesus no longer called these people Jews, that is, spiritual sons of Abraham. Christians now called sons and daughters of Abraham in their place, are the Christians and Jews who rejected Jesus are in league with the devil. The synagogue of Satan. A word about this. The Romans had granted the Jews in Israel and the dispersion exemption from Roman religious practices. They had given them the right to observe their own religion which was known in Latin as religio Licita, that is, an allowed, permitted religion. When Christianity came into being at Pentecost, Christians were safe under this Roman umbrella given to the Jews until the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. From then on, the Jews were among the first to accuse Christians to the Romans. They said that the Christians honored Jesus and not Caesar as Lord. Consequently, Christians no longer enjoyed civil protection, but were slandered, persecuted, and often killed. Those Jews who falsely accused the followers of Christ to the Romans and purposely oppressed them were indeed agents of Satan who had become the ruler of their synagogue. This is not to say that all Jews rejected Jesus and that Satan ruled all synagogues, in the province of Asia, Jesus portrayed Smyrna and Philadelphia as places where Satan instigated blasphemy and lying in the local synagogues. Also in these two cities were churches that Jesus praised without uttering a word of reproof or correction. <clears throat> Smyrna and Philadelphia Two churches that are praised by Jesus. And then you have Ephesus. And you have Pergamum. 
And you have Thyatira. And you have Sardis. And Jesus gives praise and reproof. And then there is one church left and that's Laodicea. That church receives only reproof. Not a word of recommendation or praise. Interesting. But it is Smyrna and Philadelphia that are persecuted most severely. They're small, but they stand up for the Lord Jesus and they are praised. Verse 10, And do not be afraid of anything you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. First Jesus says again, Do not fear. Then he says, The devil is about to cast some of you into prison. The Christians in Smyrna must be fully aware that they are fighting a spiritual war in which they confront the devil. Hence, they are told to be alert for the devil will incite the authorities so that some people of the congregation will be imprisoned with the distinct possibility of even being put to death. This will strike fear into the hearts of the believers who can expect to endure confiscation of property and goods, extreme poverty, and slander, but incarceration at times without trial may result in death. Jesus says that this threat to their lives is to test their faith in Him. And you will have tribulation for ten days. This is now the second time that the word tribulation occurs. You also find it in verse 9. But here its duration is specified for a ten-day period. The number 10 conveys the meaning of fullness in the decimal system. It is a symbolic number to express the completeness of the period of suffering, which is neither long nor short, but full, for its termination is sure. And Jesus says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now the city of Smyrna was laid out in such a way, architect designed it, that it looked like a crown. So we have the crown of the city and the crown promised to the faithful followers of Christ. And Jesus also speaks about the crown of life, which makes them different and meaningful. The phrase probably was idiomatic and can be translated the crown. That is fullness of life. It is emblematic of the highest joy and gladness of glory and immortality. If the saints in Smyrna pay with their life for the testimony of Jesus, they will receive imperishable life in eternal glory. And now verse 11. Let anyone who, he, who has an ear to listen hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Everyone who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The second part of this statement 
gives us the promise of overcoming and be unaffected by the second death. Now in chapter 20, the writer is going into this whole matter of the second death. In one sentence, it means to be completely cut off from the living God. That is the second death. The first death is the physical death. The second death is being completely cut off and receive absolutely no grace at all anymore. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.